Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. You are listening to episode number 126 of the Gateworld Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate. We're down to the final hours of Stargate Universe here on the podcast. Of course, the show has aired uh, in the U.S. and Canada. Hasn't quite finished up in the U.K. yet, but it will here in the next few weeks. Um, So we're talking about Blockade as our main discussion topic tonight. This is the second to the last episode, episode 19 of season two of SGU. Before we get to that, David, we have a huge amount of stuff to talk about. What do you want to get into first? Well, there's been a lot of news that's come out in the, the last uh, few days, last week or so. Obviously, at this point, Gauntlet has aired, and we've both seen it, but we're going to put that aside for next week. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about uh, some of the stuff that's uh, been going on on, uh, on the site lately, like uh, news especially. You wrote an article a couple, uh, I guess a week ago now, maybe a little bit more, about uh, how wrestling is killing science fiction. Very impressive piece. I liked it a lot. Thank you. So we have all this finale stuff going on with the show coming to an end, and that gets sort of a lot of attention for Stargate. Mm. A lot of people uh, once again coming out of the woodwork anyway to to voice their disapproval with the network for canceling the show uh, now that the final episode is aired. But yeah, I also wrote a couple of, of op-ed pieces. Uh, one, basically the first one, the wrestling piece, the argument is that you know scripted drama in the science fiction genre, really, Friday nights are really friendly, and Tuesdays are really unfriendly. Monday's a little bit, not, not quite so bad as Tuesdays, but uh, the argument is that, that sci-fi's scripted dramas really belong on Fridays, and those two hours that are eaten up by WWE SmackDown, that show needs to be moved, I think. I think mm. Thursdays is going to be the best night for it. It apparently originally aired on Thursdays years ago uh, on another network. So free up those two hours on Fridays, and shows like SGU and Caprica and Sanctuary are gonna, just going to perform better. Mm-hmm. About a week later, Craig Engler, vice president of, of what department at Sci-Fi? What's he responsible for? He's a, he's a executive VP of Sci-Fi Digital, which includes uh, all the online stuff as well okay. as some other, other okay. portions of Sci-Fi. He had a few th- uh, responses in regards to... Uh, a lot of the things that uh, Stargate fans have said, and he used GateWorld as a platform to get um, those thoughts out. That one's been picked up by Entertainment Weekly and TV by the Numbers and several other sites, so it's gotten a lot of attention around the science fiction community in general, where the network has come out and and basically put up a chart with the ratings fall Mm -hmm. for SGU and Mm -hmm. basically explained why they canceled it, and it's pretty remarkable that the network would decide to do this. Um, They certainly didn't have to, and it certainly doesn't satisfy most of us, um, but it's pretty remarkable that they did it. What do you think of his explanations? What's your personal opinion of them? I mean, I'm I'm looking at it, and I I think he raises a couple of interesting points. I mean, you look at that chart, and you see, like, after Life, after the episode Life, there is a tremendous audience drop-off. And it, it never recovers from that. And I, and I know a lot of people who, sa- who said, I saw that episode and I hated it. And I'm like, I'm done with the show. And I know that a lot of the folks who did that episode 
I mean, thought that it was the greatest episode of the first half of the season. I didn't care for it, mm. and you know, it. I, I I thought it was a good character development. But if you look at that chart, a lot of people just jumped ship after that. He does have some interesting points on that chart. You're right. The biggest single drop, I think, is is between life and and the mid season finale. Um, it's not even between the seasons, the, the the halves of the first season. So the show started up around two and a half million when you include the DVR delayed viewing, uh, which is what these numbers are. The show started up around two and a half, two point seven million, and then over the course of the first season. In the second half of the season, it settled down just under two million, uh, which which Sci-Fi says this is sort of the threshold because the show was as expensive as it was, mm-hmm. and we know that it was it was an expensive show. That that threshold was sort of the the danger zone. Mm-hmm. That was um, that was not a good number. So it's been confirmed over the last couple of weeks uh, uh, what what we've known for a while, uh, which was the SGU was picked up originally in two thousand. Nine, or I guess it would have been the summer of 2008, for a 40-episode order. Um, mm-hmm. Sci-Fi and MGM contracted two seasons, and there was a minimum ratings threshold that the yeah. first season had to meet in order to trigger the second season. And they hit that. Uh, but what it meant was going into season two, the show was already on life support mm-hmm. when it was moved to Tuesdays. And I can't help but notice the chart doesn't show the distance between episode airings and the nights that it was on. I mean, all this stuff is it needs to be factored into how the episodes performed. I mean, sci-fi waited for, in some cases, ungodly periods of time to return the show, put it on ungodly nights. There's ample blame to be given to everyone. Here's what I think Craig set out to do. I think that he set out to demonstrate that the show was already at the point where it ought to be canceled based on its cost. Mm-hmm. At the end of the first season. And so moving it off of Friday nights, moving it to Tuesday, uh, moving it to Monday, pairing it with these other shows, um, it didn't make any difference ultimately because it, it couldn't recover. It, um, they hoped it would it would find a new audience on Tuesdays and recover a bit, but it didn't. On the flip side of that, you, I mean, it's it's a bit disturbing to me to think about the fact that all through season two that the show has been on life support and basically being moved to Tuesdays it had no chance mm-hmm. whatsoever and sci-fi doesn't seem to have intended to do anything with the show to really give it the chance I think they probably had, were already pronouncing it DOA See, by the time season 2 rolled around and if that was the case you know that, that's probably the thing that frustrate, frustrates me the most because they could have gone to them and said you know what we don't care how well the show's going to do this season if that's the case you know it's it's pretty much dead on arrival wrap it up wrap the storyline up because as a viewer i've been uh, they have pushed us to be invested in this show and pushed us and pushed us and i have you know obliged in the case of sgu and now we'll never see it come to fruition and the only the only thing that we have to look forward to now is these little sprinkled nuggets that come out in certain producers blogs about what this would have been and what that would have been and oh how nice would have that have been and oh wouldn't that have been nice and it's just wrong <laughs> bottom line are you satisfied with with those responses that that craig that craig listed no of course i'm not satisfied um he's he's absolutely right to point out that television is a business and it doesn't yeah. make any sense i mean yeah. joe malazzi said this last week on his blog it doesn't make any sense for sci-fi to pick up an expensive show 
when it can't get the numbers yeah. to, to justify it. Yeah. Uh, but then sort of shoving all the blame onto the show itself and onto the producers is not really fair. And it's absolutely true that, that some of the blame does lie with the writers. I think Brad has uh-huh. said publicly that he thought that season one, in retrospect, probably did start too slow, and they uh-huh. did lose a lot of viewers. Uh-huh. And that is on, on the show. What do you think? Uh, Craig's are, I, I'm really glad that he did the article, but at uh, the, the second half of it, he's responding to specific critiques, and then he just vanishes at the end. He doesn't have quite a bit of a wrap-up. It feels like it was rushed. And it feels like mm-hmm. he's just... You know, he's just taking the opportunity to pitch the ball back at the end. You know, you hated SGU. Well, we loved SGU. Well, from from just saying we loved Stargate, we loved SGU, you know. I mean, I'm reading between the lines, and it just sounds like spin. But, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's definitely he's doing damage He's a businessman. I mean, yeah, and he's I mean, doing damage imagine control. Imagine the fact he's uh, – Craig is the one who, who runs the sci-fi Twitter account. So he's interacting with right. fans on a daily basis through right. Twitter – um, he looks at what people are are posting on, you know, Sci-Fi's Facebook page and on their forum probably, and and all the emails that they're constantly getting, thousands upon thousands the yeah. week that that SGU went off the air, that are just irate. You hate Stargate. You hate science fiction. You never gave the show a chance. And he, I understand he wanted to sort of address some of those concerns directly. Mm-hmm. You just have to go in reading that, knowing that. He has an agenda, and rightfully so, and his agenda is to protect his company. That's just the way it is, you know? Uh, but that, all that aside, I'm still glad that he took the time to talk. Because uh, they, yeah. they didn't have to, to communicate this. Yeah, yeah, and it was really nice of him to, to give it to us to publish. Uh, he did make it clear that, that he did not intend this to be a response to my editorials about Friday nights and Sanctuary and wrestling. I sort of suggested that he might want to address those a bit more directly, and um, that that wasn't the intent of this piece. So take that for what it's worth. Aside from the uh, the Craig Engler and and wrestling uh, stories, uh, there's been a lot of information coming out about um, how the end of SGU uh, uh, was uh, shaped up to be uh, SG One movies. All of this stuff can be found in the. Uh, uh, in the GateWorld news section at GateWorld.net. There's a lot of really great uh, news pieces that are coming out right now. And if you, if you want to know some of the things that they were planning on doing in Season 3, the different approaches that they were going to take for Eli, for instance, or the SG-1 movie, keep your browser on GateWorld. Don't go away. I mean, just, just to wet your tongue, one of them says uh, the SG-1 movie would have been, it would have revealed the, uh, the Stargate. That's one of the things that were, they were talking about. And I was thinking about this yesterday when I first um, heard about this. One of the, one of the quotes that Brad gave us a long time ago: "How the hell is this thing still a secret? It can't be, <laughs> you know. I, I, this thing has been so many thousands of people are involved in this program at this point with all these ships and crews and you know all, all these different expeditions. It's it, really you really have to suspend your disbelief to not think that this is just not all over the internet on, on conspiracy theory websites and you know with Colson Industries and the whole the whole deal with the right. alien and you know it's." They have to do this. They have to reveal this. And I, I know a lot of people have been reading the comments. A lot of people are uncomfortable with that. But you just can't – you can't keep it a secret any longer. You know, it's – you have – you're really suspending your disbelief to say that this is not – that this is not public. We already know that this isn't our earth. We are – we have different presidents. We have different administrations, this and that. Go ahead. I mean, the prior plague never hit and, and killed thousands of us. That didn't happen here. Go ahead and reveal it. This is an alternate earth as it is. 
Yeah, well, I mean, SG-1's been off the air long enough. They've already done a couple of SG-1 movies. We're not really playing in the Milky Way galaxy. We're not, we don't exactly. see Earth all that much anymore with SGU up and running. It seems like it's it's certainly time. Uh, he said that it's it's a big enough idea that he wanted to save it for a movie, and apparently mm-hmm. he was planning uh, for Stargate Revolution, that, that SG-1 movie that almost mm-hmm. got the green light to be filmed in 2008 and, uh, or 2009, didn't quite uh, mm-hmm. make it past the economy. It's really interesting, though. I mean, they toyed with it. They, they did the, the sort of alternate timeline in the episode 2010, where the mm-hmm. Stargate had, had been public for years and was mm-hmm. being used you know, publicly. Uh, and the road not taken. Stargate's public. And yeah, and they, they also you know, sort of toyed with the idea of exposure in episodes like um, Covenant with Colson Industries. Yep. Yeah, it's been one of those things that's been with us for so many years, and it, it definitely would have been epic. It would have been a major turning point in the Stargate story. It would have, it would have been a revolution, for sure. We have uh, lots of stuff to get to. Not only do we have our blockade discussion, but we have, uh, as expected, lots and lots of voicemail. Voicemail on blockade, voicemail on the cancellation. And one more thing that we need to talk about before we get into the main topic this week is we're ready to announce basically the big project that we're going to be doing at GateWorld over the next year and a half uh, and that we hope people all over the world are going to participate in, which is the Stargate Rewatch. The idea is a big worldwide Stargate fan community event uh, where we are re-watching all three series and all three movies together uh, at about the same pace. So we're going to give one month to each season and we'll have special features at GateWorld. We'll do, you know, we'll pull up the podcasts that we did before on each season and then we're going to start recording some uh, fan episode commentaries like we talked about a few weeks ago. At least one, maybe two. I think we're maybe talking about doing two audio commentaries a month for each season. Yeah, ideally, I mean, this is something that I pitched to Darren. He he pitched the the commentary idea of of fans contributing a story. But I would like us to do one that that we vote on, and also do the one that fans vote on. Forty four so. minutes straight recording, uninterrupted, uninterrupted uh, occasionally, mayhem. <laughs> occasionally hilarious, usually probably quite dull. But we'll see how they turn out. Yeah, the idea is we put up a poll at the beginning of the month. So we're going to start on August 1st. So we'll have 17 months, 17 seasons. That'll take us through 2012. So on August 1st, we're going to put up uh, polls for that for SG-1 Season 1. And you can vote on your favorite episodes. And so that by the, the time the middle of the month comes around and we start to see the poll results, we know basically what Stargate fans are going to pick as their favorite episode. Mm-hmm. And then we'll record an audio commentary on that one, and then we will pick another one. If you want to learn more about that and how you can participate, go to gateworld.net slash rewatch, and you can find all the info there. Again, August 1st, 2011 is going to be the start date. Uh, you can watch on DVD at home if you own the DVDs. Uh, otherwise, the entire series is up on Netflix. Uh, the last few episodes of SGU are not now, but obviously we won't get to them until a year from December. And really the big thing is participate, you know. Don't just watch the show, but you know, talk about it online, tweet about it, blog about it, write some some fanfic, whatever your your skill or what your, your interest out- outlet is. is, yeah. Okay, now let's talk about Bucket. The main discussion. Well, now that we've got all that past us, our main discussion topic once again is blockade. This is episode 19 of season 2 of Stargate Universe. I really loved Common Descent. I thought the epilogue uh, the week before this one was amazing. One of my favorite hours of Stargate Universe. 
and I read in the spoilers that the drones were coming back. And, mm. you know, we talked about the mid-season two-parter, uh, Resurgence and Deliverance. I uh, wasn't terribly thrilled with the drones. Um, they're they're really annoying, and they're obviously a big threat to Destiny. But they're sort of they're they don't have any personality. There's not actually even a, even a race of people that's behind them. Well, um, I've t- I've talked with leftover technology. I've talked with Diana so. a lot about this, um, and having already seen Gauntlets, and I'm, this is the only time that I'm going to do this in this episode. I basically look at epilogue as the series finale, and mm. and. Gauntlet and Blockade, not in that order, as kind of an interesting afterthought. Yeah, kind of after epilogue, it kind of feels like an afterthought in some ways. So yeah, for that reason, the drones are a middle, mid-season threat. Yeah, they're a mid-season threat. We kind of move past them. I wasn't really expecting to to think a whole lot of this this episode. I mean, I admit that I, I sort of handicapped it in my own mind as a fan. Um, mm-hmm. I loved it. I loved Blockade. Uh, really? I've seen it three times now, and I've actually enjoyed it more each time that I've watched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's so much in this. Uh, little character beats and great emotion, great stuff uh, from Eli, great stuff in this, in this uh, I guess it would be maybe a, a C storyline with Lisa deciding to stay on board mm-hmm. and getting trapped in the hydroponics bay. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on here. There's Eli and his plan to... Uh, to recharge the ship uh, and so he and Rush stay on board to do that. There's everybody goes off to the planet and they have their adventure on the planet mm-hmm. and then there's everything that's going on with Lisa being trapped. Quick recap, uh, the drones have uh, have blocked or, or have uh, blockaded I guess, certain stars which Destiny uses to recharge. They have figured this out somehow, but they have not blockaded every star in their galaxy just just the ones that, uh, that uh, is it Red Dwarfs that Destiny uses? I can't. I can't remember For specifically. For the most part, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Most of them are red dwarf type stars. So they go find a blue giant. I think is what it is. Uh, and, a blue uh, super giant. Blue super giant. A class which is apparently, O star. Apparently, a lot hotter. Uh, yeah. And Diane Trichet will have a few things to say about this. <laughs> if you think that our sun soul is hot, a blue super giant is. I think the scientific term is frickin' hot. Do we know how much hotter? Several times. So much that when Eli sort of announces his plan, Volker freaks out. <laughs> Volker says, there's no way we can survive that that kind of heat. Wow. And I just love this dialogue exchange. Eli says, well, you know, that's not the plan. And yeah. Volker says, well, I think it's a bad plan. So Lisa and Eli and Rush are left aboard the ship. Lisa's intent is to, you know, salvage uh, plants and seeds that uh, we can never get back because they're behind us. So... The aeroponics or hydroponics bay or whatever you want to call it, the dome, uh, they finally got it going. You know, the the, the plants are, are are they're really going, and you know, they don't have a chance to eat any of it. You know, I mean, this this it, the project hasn't been going on for that long, and and now they're going to lose it. It's been doing great. I mean, we saw in Hope, we saw Greer and Volker going for a walk in the garden. But here we get to see the stuff that you know the food they've been growing. There's, you know, there's rows of corn. It looks like tomatoes. There. Yeah. Uh, there's tons of tomato plants, and yeah, um, Park tells tells Young that that there are medicinal plants in here from planets that we're not going to go back to. Mm-hmm. My concern from this episode, I mean, the, the ship, some sections of the ship are going to get over 400 degrees Fahrenheit in temperature. And I keep on asking myself, what can possibly survive that? You know, I mean, mm. all all these food stores that we brought back, 
from uh, the the planet. You know, I mean, really, basically, you know, and fabrics and like I was thinking things like bedding. You know, what could really survive? What yeah. I mean, wouldn't the, what I mean, plastics? Wouldn't all of our plastics melt at, at that paper. temperature? Rody has apparently been been manufacturing paper. Yeah, we learned yeah. In this there's a there's a comment about that too. You know, I, I really, and I know this is kind of a quibble, but you know, I really ask myself what could possibly survive. You know, because I know that I, I when I was in Phoenix, I would uh, I would leave for about two weeks, you know, and I would shut the power off in my house. I would clear out my fridge and I would shut the power off, and my house would get up to 120 degrees inside mm-hmm. while I was gone. You know, and I would come back and and you know, candles were were shaped differently and. Your furniture's uh, my, in a puddle. No, but but like canned goods. When I would open, even even after the the house cooled down, and weeks later, I would open up canned goods, and can and canned food wouldn't taste the same, and ketchup even ketchup wouldn't taste the same. Just just as an example, things. I wonder what kinds of things would happen uh, after you would let the ship get that hot. You know. Um, yeah, that's good. I'm point. not sure if a lot of stuff would have survived. They would have had to have taken a. Maybe they took a lot with them. I know that they took some things with them to to escape those they, temperatures. Young's line to the crew is to pack light because yeah, exactly. Pack light. You're going to be back, I and that's exactly took, when I thought about it. Took much of anything with them. Um, they did say when they were when they were trying to empty out all the everything that they could pick from hydroponics. They said that the that the guys were trying to rig some sort of refrigeration system. Yeah, there was a mention of that. Hydroponics lab. It's one of those things that's that's left just vague enough that it's sort of Mm -hmm. plausible. Mm -hmm. Whatever you need to use in the next episode, we could say, yeah, that was one of the things that got saved. When they go into the sun, I think it's Rush who uses it, calls the uh, the uh, devices underneath the ship the collectors. And I was just thinking to myself, oh, just come on, just call it Bussard collectors. Go ahead. You know, we're not gonna. We're not going to step on you for that. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's what they are. Okay, so the basic plot here is that the drones have found Destiny's Achilles heel. We've been able to keep away from them, but they have now predicted our path. Mm -hmm. Uh, They know, generally, I think, uh, what we're supposed to take is that they've figured out the corridor that Destiny is moving down following the seed ships, following the Mm -hmm. Stargates. And these uh, these drone ships apparently coordinate with one another. It's not just one drone ship and another drone ship. They're not just out there floating around by themselves. They are capable of attacking in force, uh, coordinated. That's one of the things that I was wondering about the previous episode of Common Descent. You know, that one drone ship send drones to Destiny and drones to the planet. No, they, they were coordinated. That was probably that was probably two control ships. They are now using that strategy against us. And notice that Destiny seems to be sort of keyed into this, and is Destiny herself is acting smart in that at the beginning of the episode, uh, the ship is on its way to a star to recharge, but Destiny drops out of FTL way far away from the star because, remember, we have this FTL problem. The FTL mm-hmm. drive needs about three hours to recharge before, you can push uh, before we again. go back into FTL, otherwise we're going to blow out the drive. So that by the time we get, we do this another one of these a breaking maneuver around, around a planet and get to the star in this system, uh, the three hours has, has pretty much elapsed. And we were asking ourselves, you know, the crew was, why? Why is she doing this? Why is it taking this time to do this? And it seems yeah. to know, you know, that when it gets around to the other side, that this was a possibility. Yeah, and I guess the crew's not thinking about it at this point. Uh, they think that the drones are behind them, but Destiny's keyed in on it, and Destiny's exactly right. So three hours later, there's a bunch of drones, and we leap back into FTL and pick another star, 
and hope it was a coincidence uh, and drop out again and there's another there's command another chip and command more chip. drones and we mm-hmm. go back into FTL. The little scene with Telford is is pretty interesting. You don't have to have a, a scene like this where, we, where you're communicating your plan to Earth. Uh, bring back Lou Diamond Phillips. But they do it and it's an interesting scene because it gets it gets a uh, some of the exposition out, you know, as we're explaining yeah. it to a character who's not been on the ship. And then Telford says, okay, I'm going to go back and try to sell this to Homeworld Command. And, and Colonel Young says, you know what, this is our only option. We're, we're not asking for permission. We're informing you. This we're informing we're you that we're going to do this, yeah. There was a great beat, too, from Rush's POV where you see Scott rather than Telford. And the yeah. exchange is, you know, you're not here. You're not out here. Not, These are our lives. Bloody here. Yeah, and as much hassle as we've given the communication stones over the last two seasons, that's a great line. You're yep. not even bloody here. So we go to the planet, and uh, yeah. Rush stays behind, and Eli stays behind, and Park makes her case that we have a third suit that's working now, so she's going to stay behind. And she's and an expert on the suits. So. Everybody else goes through the Stargate. Once again, I have to praise the use of the Stargate, praise the fact that we get to see characters walk through the puddle, uh, that we get to see Aquino go through, and and send back telemetry and... Uh, so we find the remains of a civilization on this planet, and uh, the rest of the crew goes there, and they've got to hang out for at least seven hours before they can gate back. What was this planet? Why was there a civilization here? Where did these guys come from? The main city is called Terminus, which uh, is really funny because I was reading Isaac Asimov's Foundation at the time that this episode had aired, and the Foundation mm-hmm. in Asimov's story is based on a planet called Terminus. Basically, the idea was that uh, that uh, civilizations uh, left uh, to uh, settled on different planets from Novus. They continued to use the gates to explore, and they found this right. world, and they continued to evolve. So, it's uh, it's conceivable that uh, you know that this uh, planet would have technology that's around our own. So, it made a lot of sense to use this world. Hi, David and Darren. This is Rick from Crystal Lake, Chicago land area. And I was listening to your recent podcast, and I have a comment with regard to the language question that had been raised. One thing that you guys did not did not consider is the fact that they they had the Destiny database, or cer- certainly vast amounts of electronic data stored with them. And so. From a language perspective, the difference between looking at Christ's time and looking at how they might have evolved is they had tons of Kino footage. They had a full dictionary, thesaurus, all that kind of language content to draw from. So when you consider the huge amount of, of linguistic content they already had in archives, I wouldn't expect that the language development would have changed that much because they would have been drawing from, you know, thousands of years of English, if you will, that they brought with them from destiny. So it wouldn't necessarily flow that their language would necessarily change because the foundation of their language was documented in written form. It wasn't oral history. And the reason why language changes so much is from oral tradition, but their language really formed the basis from a written electronic foundation, it probably would not have modified modified 
Oh, that much. And I loved uh, the, all the billboards and, you know, the language, the thing that I had mentioned in, in the previous week's episode um, in yeah. a blog about language evolving. They do that a lot more in this episode where it is English, you know, but it's evolved slightly and the, the, the spellings are different. It's a pseudo English. Bobby from Kirkland, Washington, hoping I'm not too late to comment on blockade. Regarding your quibbles that the Destiny Prime's descendants still use today's English and how artificial that seems, I have a possible explanation, at least a partial one. The descendants have many digital video and audio recordings of how their ancestors spoke and wrote 2,000 years previously, recordings that we know are largely intact and of quality that seems comparable to at least standard deaf television. Could having continual access to this pristine source have kept the descendants' English from mutating as it has on Earth. Imagine if, for the past 1,500 years, we had Kino footage of how Anglo-Saxon was spoken and spelled, the inflections and accents of its original speakers, the standard language versus the colloquial language. Might our use of English today have mutated much more slowly, given those preserved sources? In this regard, the Kino would have the same role that the spread of the English Empire and the printing press has in stabilizing English spelling, vocabulary, and grammar, or that audio-video media and now computing have in stabilizing English pronunciation. Perhaps the descendants' devotion to their ancestors included preserving every detail of the ancestors' language as portrayed by the Kinos, a kind of fundamentalism, if you will. I say this in the context of blockade because, if you look, the shop signs along the street have some different spellings and glyphs for English words, but are unchanged enough that we as viewers can easily recognize them. It's kind of a fun minigame that you can play at home to just spot the words and spot the English words that are spelled differently. Exactly, exactly. That was a great touch. You know, They recognize that this is 2,000 years later. Things evolve. Not, co- not, not totally, but, you know, I mean... I think a part of that is that everyone on the ship who spoke English two thousand spoke English two thousand years ago. So as opposed to you know two thousand years ago, everyone spoke different languages. So I think I think it does hold up. It does hold up pretty well. The drones, though, were were they? Or, or, or did you get the impression that they were originally from the planet, or that they you know they detected that the and they were dormant, or did you get the impression that they detected the Stargate and then flew in? I thought at first that uh, the planet had been totally abandoned, including by the drones, and the drones had shown up. But mm-hmm. um, I think that that what's going on is that for some reason, and somebody explained this to me, after the drones wipe these guys out, uh, some of them stayed behind and mm-hmm. were dormant. So these two that we see in this episode were just sort of probably parked somewhere on the outskirts of the city and were activated when they detected the, the probably the yeah. Stargate Kawoosh. Well, don't forget, we see their mothership near the end, so they may, have, they may have phoned home, shall we say. Yeah, well, we know that dialing the Stargate is probably going to atta- uh, attract them, so I think that 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 command ship gets yeah, attracted from elsewhere in the galaxy, and then it takes them seven hours to get there. My favorite aspect of this just episode. in time. <laughs> well, it's a cool shot just in the end. You, know? go back. you get oh, the oh my god shot. kind of kind of vibe when when you see this thing coming out of the sky. We've got to get out of here right now. I loved the War of the Worlds aspect to this episode. I felt like I was reading H.G. Wells. Mm. You know, I, I the drones going down that. That street, you know, blowing everything to hell. I really got a, I really got an H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds vibe 
while while watching mm. this episode. Great vibe. So really, really well achieved. Well, so this Novan colony, I guess we, we've had hints along the way, but it seems like every episode we're learning a little bit more about their civilization. Mm-hmm. We had we'd known that when they realized that this rogue black hole was coming uh, and was going to destroy their planet, that they had been sending out expedition teams, uh, which was like the one that we came across where these, you know, a, a few dozen people living in tents, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, in addition to those, they also had colonies. They didn't just have Novus. They had colonies of people who over the course of centuries probably had gone out to other planets and settled. So yeah, like you said, at this point, um, they're, they're sort of like an outer rim colony. Um, they're not yeah. as technologically advanced yeah. as Novus itself was. It's promised that, uh, that we'll find, and, and Rush, I think, speaks in this episode, you know, there's a chance that we'll find some of these, some of these cultures uh, in this galaxy, you know, as we move throughout mm-hmm. it. This is, this is an interesting point, you know, the, the planet that's, that's built like us, except uh, it has no cars. It has streets, though, but it has no cars. And there's there's a comment in this episode. I think Brody has it. You know, where are all the vehicles? Yeah, and there was there was actually an explanation uh, when when James and Camille and Morrison, thank goodness, for the sake of the Omnipedia, finally gets a name. <laughs> uh, Vincent Gale's character, Doctor Morrison, <laughs> finds the newspaper with with the big attack headline on yeah. it. Yeah, where they start to figure out what happened, and they figure out that one of the things that they did was um, they moved the Stargate to this sort of old part of the city that didn't have much tech. And then as they were evacuating people, volunteers drove their cars away from the city. And it sounds like sacrificed themselves in order yeah. to save as many people as possible. By, that by doesn't explain all of the cars, I think. What I, what I think happened was um, they probably drove them through the gate to another planet, you know? Through the gate? I mean, yeah, through the gate. No, Absolutely. So. Oh, no. I mean, the ones that they used to distract the drones, they wouldn't have driven through the gate. No, but, no, but, but, but every there is not a single vehicle on those streets. I think that they drove the rest of their, their cars. And, I mean, if, if you had a culture sure. that had a Stargate in it, you would, have built your, you would have built your vehicles to be able to fit through the gate. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, I think. So I think that's how a lot of people got out of there. They took their vehicles and they went through the gate. Okay, so people fan out and uh, were looking for yeah. medical supplies. Uh, TJ Outfits. says she's been washing bandages for months, which is yeah. gross. We're looking for food. Uh, so see if you can find a grocery store. Greer wants to find bullets. He, notice, he notes before they gate to this point. They're low. Find out, on ammunition. Find out what it is that, that we're low on ammunition. I hope we don't have to fire off any rounds and they end up firing off a yeah. lot. I assumed the that you know, we were set on bullets because they, uh, you know, the, we, got, we got double the, the ammunition in, in Twin Destinies. But if you were low to begin with, I mean, if you only had two bullets to begin with in Twin Destinies, yeah. you would have ended with four. So a lot of, a lot of weapons fire went off after uh, the Evolution Alliance boarded the ship, so that's understandable. I was thinking about what you said last week on Epilogue about the fact that at, at this point we've, you know, in Twin Destinies we got a bunch of tech for Destiny herself uh, to make repairs and such. And then in Epilogue, we ended up getting not just information from Novus, but lots of, of food stores. Lots of food stores. All this kind of stuff. So we're sort of preparing to be like fully stocked Destiny for this mission yeah. going forward. Uh, again, in this episode, we're finding some um, medical supplies. TJ, we TJ are. found something approaching a pharmacy that yeah. had been mostly cleared out, but she said she found some stuff. It felt like, you know, they were getting ready to to move on to, to other concerns in Season 3. 
like the like okay we're getting our we're getting the last of our basics figured out at the end of season two so that when season three comes yeah. along we we can handle these larger problems and not even have to worry about these kinds of issues in every episode yeah we don't have to stop and try and synthesize something from the venom of an alien creature or yeah. talk about the fact that we're low on medicinals because you know we're doing okay it's not the plot point well as we explore this city out from the stargate uh, and the drones show up greer in, and his team is on one side of the street so they duck into one building scott and his people are on the other side of the street uh, so they end up on opposite sides with this drone in the middle this mm-hmm. drone has found them uh, and is sort of looking around for them, apparently for hours because it gets dark. It's just sitting uh, there waiting. Yeah, it's floating. It's it's looking. It's waiting hour after hour, apparently, for some sign of something. Mm-hmm. So what this tells me that's really interesting, uh, uh, learning more about the drones, is they're not just going after tech, are they? Um, they're... You know, they're detecting the walkie-talkie signals, they're detecting the Stargate, they're detecting the presence of technology on these planets that they attack and, and on ships that they attack, mm. but they're not just going after technology. They're waiting for signs of people, and when Greer throws the can to distract the drone, yeah, uh, it turns and shoots at it because it hears a noise and senses movement. Yeah, we uh, saw in Common Descent they're, them, they're out them to blowing wipe people out away. People. Well, I've, I've, yeah. yeah, yeah, that that is basically confirmed. You know that uh, you know they associate technology with the people, and even even radio signals. Um, they they chase them. They chase them down, and it's used to right. their advantage at, at near the end of the episode when Varro blows the hell out of one of them. Morrison and James had a couple of great beats in this episode too. I mean, the guy freaks out under pe- pressure, and she just lays him flat. She puts him down. Yeah, he grabs the remote and tries to dial the starts target. dialing. Turns it on and summons the gate, the uh, the drone away. Well, should we go back ship side now? Sure. Great visual effects. Absolutely astounding. Mark Savella did himself proud once again. If the man doesn't get nominated for an Emmy this year, I'll really be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He must get an Emmy nod. There's so many gorgeous shots of destiny in this episode. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, against the blue star and at the beginning yep. of the episode against the blue planet. Yeah. So this is Eli's plan, and another great exchange when he's explaining the plan at the beginning of the episode. Rush says, uh, you know, the drones have blocked every star that Destiny would re- recharge from, and mm-hmm. Eli has come up with a plan, and it's completely insane, and it's our only option. Mm-hmm. And Eli says, don't oversell it. Don't oversell it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Rush has his issues with Eli. He has, he's basically more or less put them aside in this episode. You know, Eli and I are the only ones who can do this. You know, we're the ones who have to stay. And, and Telford's like, wait, mm-hmm. really? You're going to be the one who's going to stay? And at the end of the episode, you know, don't tell, Eli, don't tell him I said this, but he's genius. You know, his calculations yeah. were perfect. And I love, I love the shot of behind the, the computer looking at Eli, and all you can see is his bulging eyes, you know, and he's doing the computations. That's really for, for Rush, and obviously for Eli coming into his own, but also for, for his relationship with Rush. Mm-hmm. This episode did a lot. Rush is, on the one hand, there's this scene where he's trying to goad Eli into, you know, who's going to fly the ship? There's not going to be any time for second guesses. We have to decide right now who's piloting, who's the co-pilot. When Eli decides, okay, yeah, I'm going to fly the ship, Rush is almost a little bit bitter about it, even though he knows that Eli probably the right call, the right decision. Yeah. On the other hand, you get this, you know, exchanges like this with Young at the end, where where he says, you know, he was genius. The kid's a genius. Yeah. It. it was amazing. It was amazing to watch him. He was a virtuoso. He's he's appreciating Eli, and I think he's helping Eli. I think that mm-hmm. by goading him, 
he's at the same time he's he's sort of deliberately helping Eli to step up and kind and of helping himself own. stay alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the crazy plan is we've picked a star that Destiny would never fly into in a million years. Mm-hmm. So there's no drones. It's mm-hmm. super hot. And Eli starts out helping Lisa pick vegetables, and he gets out to help help uh, Rush prepare for the flight uh, through the star. And Lisa does not get out of the dome in time. Locks her in. And they make a point, this you know, is... what is it with these doors? So, I mean, if you went down there, you've got to be able to open that door in an emergency situation. I mean, unless the ancients were nuts, you know, you have to be able to, to manually override it. And they can't, you know. So she's stuck yeah. in there, and it leads to one of the more incredible visual effects sequences ever done in the show. Really impressive. Yeah, this is sort of foreshadowed, I think when destiny systems start to shut down because of the loss of power mm-hmm. when the crew is still on board and uh, volker and james are on the bridge and mm-hmm. the bridge starts to shut down and they they exit as quickly as they can and then the bridge door closes and locks mm-hmm. uh, it's a good thing they got out when they did mm-hmm. yeah uh, and the the bridge retracts from the from the roof so of course eli wants to do everything he can eli's got his priorities straight with uh, you know Trying to save Lisa is the most important thing we can do here. And Rush has to remind him, even if it means that Lisa dies, mm-hmm. uh, the most important thing is to save the ship uh, mm-hmm. and get, get the crew back. I mean, Eli's ready to go down there with a crowbar and try and pry the door open, and Rush mm-hmm. stops him and, you and have convinces to pilot Lisa. The ship. Yeah, he convinces Lisa over the radio that he thinks she's going to survive, even though he might not actually think that. Mm-hmm. Um, so she goes and climbs into the water water tank at the center of the hydroponics bay and submerges herself for a as it's boiling protection from the heat and she um has uh flash blindness she loses her eyesight yeah i did not expect that that was that was very appropriate and did you expect her to survive no i didn't expect her to make it and when she did i was kind of surprised but then we found yeah. out that she was blind and i was like okay that's that's a fair trade-off that's a fair trade-off. Mm-hmm. You know that incident had to have consequences. You know, if this were on, if this were Stargate Atlantis, there wouldn't have been consequences from that. But this had mm-hmm. to. Well, we'd sort of been speculating that they might kill off a character by the end of the season. I know they haven't really killed off anyone. <laughs> no, it's what Stargate writers tend to do uh, when they mm-hmm. go for long stretches of time. Is eventually somebody's going to go. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there we lost are... Riley, but you know that's that's a supporting character. We haven't lost any of the main characters. At this point. Well, Riley's a supporting character that was that was missing for most of season one. Exactly. At this point, Park is a pretty major supporting player. I mean, I, I enter the credits into the episode guide every week, and Park and Brody and Volker have been in virtually every episode this season. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. And when that door closed on her, I was about 90% sure she was a goner. So yeah. I was... I was really relieved when Eli rushes down after after the trip through the star is over and radios her from outside the and door. She's at and the door. You hear, you hear her voice. She says, I'm at the door. Um, mm-hmm. she, she survived. Yeah, really emotional moment when she when she tells Eli that she's blind. That really got me. Yeah. Jennifer Spence. Props to Jennifer Spence. Uh, she's just been nominated for a second Leo Award for Stargate Universe. Leo Awards is uh, British Columbia television and film awards um big deal in canada she was nominated last year for life mm-hmm. uh, which i don't get um because mm-hmm. it seemed like her part was really small in that episode mm-hmm. uh, but yeah she got a nod this this year for malice and from what i'm told the awards are based on the year that it's broadcast so i think next year she could be eligible again for an episode like this 
Well, at the end, the crew comes back. Uh, everybody's safe. Everybody's happy. Uh, Camille gets a new outfit, and <laughs> uh, everybody's safe and happy, obviously, except poor Lisa, who's blind. Hopefully, temporarily, Rush says. And really, what have we gained after this huge, uh, risky operation? We got a full tank of gas. And mm-hmm. this is going to continue to be an issue because if the drones and the command ships, they basically have our number. They have Destiny's number. They know how she operates. The guys say at the end of the episode that, that we're probably not going to be able to do this again, yeah. that, that they're going to figure it out and they're probably going to station. I, I imagine they're going to station command ships at, at these other stars. Throughout the corridor yeah, of, yeah. of the galaxy. And we don't find out until the next episode that we're a third of the way through. <laughs> we, we wouldn't make it. We would not make it. Mm-hmm. Much to talk about on that front uh, next week for Gauntlet. Shall we do some quibbles? It's time for quibbles. Um, okay, I have a few quibbles. The first one is Mrs. Darren's quibble, actually, that I, threw <laughs> I thought was interesting. It's a minor quibble, which is that at the beginning, uh, after they exit the firefight, Young gets on the comms and announces, we're clear of the drones. When the crew had not actually been told that there were any drones. Uh, we had not engaged them in a firefight. Nobody but the people on the bridge knew that there were drones ahead. Interesting. That's an interesting point. I did not think of that. If this planet was destroyed by the drones long ago, it looks like it's been several years, you know, the labels on the cans are all faded out, and the war between the drones' creators and the Ursini was relatively recent. You know, they'd been hibernating for probably for, for years. Why wasn't Novus itself attacked? Yeah, that was my big so complaint if, for a long time. This, if this Novan colony had been wiped out, and because we led them there, the drones found the, the little expedition uh, of, of the descendants in common descent. Novus is a gigantic, technologically advanced city in the mm-hmm. same part of space. Mm-hmm. Why did the drones never find Novus? Well, how long has Novus... Um been taken out from the uh, from the super volcano. I mean, how long has it been dormant? Oh, do we have a timeline on that? Because that um, may have that may be the key. You know, yeah, I, less I, than thirty I, years, I think, is the timeline. In that period, would would the um, drones have been dormant? We really don't know. It's the that that's the thing is the war with the Ursini was vague enough mm-hmm. that we don't really know if this was ten years ago or a hundred years ago or what. We just know that we we found some Ursini and they were in stasis. For who knows how long. So it's either a timing thing. And they didn't thing. know that their home world had been taken over. It's either a timing thing with the with the dormancy of the drones, or perhaps there's a connection with the drones and the uh, and the Novans themselves, or they reprogram them or something. Thomas asks a similar question. Let's listen. Hey, Thomas from Melbourne, Australia. Just wondering, you mentioned in one of your podcasts that Destiny woke up with the drones. If so, how come in this episode the planet got destroyed? Well, not destroyed, but wiped out. A few years ago or more. Thanks. So the similar question is, if Destiny was the one that woke up the drones, if they were inactive before that, then why was this planet destroyed mm. years ago? Maybe it's that that all the drones were not inactive at the same time. Mm-hmm. The ones that we came across in the debris field and resurgence mm-hmm. were active, but other drones in other parts of the galaxy were active. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's a possibility, a strong possibility. I think it's similar to like the wraith. You know, where some wraith hives would eventually would occasionally wake up to feed and then go back to sleep, and then others would wake yeah. up, feed, and go back to sleep. You know, but all all we know about the drones is that they live to destroy. So I'm not sure how that works exactly. You know, and it, they don't talk about very much about their their recharge necessities. You know, what they need to survive. You know, what they what they 
exist right. on in terms of power. So that may have something to do with that. Yeah, there's enough vagaries that I think it's hard to pin down an exact timeline here for the drones. Hi, my name is Dana. I'm calling from Seattle. I have a quibble about blockade. Why didn't they just take the girls out of quarantine and let them handle it if they needed somebody actively controlling the ship while it was too hot for any humans to survive? We know they're capable of affecting the ship or they wouldn't need to be in quarantine in the first place. And while we're on quibbles, why in the previous episode did Eli have to manually turn a crank to keep a data stream going? I mean, not that it was ever explained that was what he was doing or that there was any particular action that needed to be taken, but why couldn't they just leave the planet and allow the transfer to continue in their absence? It was never explained, and I would have liked to have Young, for instance, try to move them along so that somebody would have to say why we have to physically be here to keep this going. This is a very interesting point. But I think it's answered in the episode. You know, systems were shutting down, and we're not sure what systems will shut down and which will stay, uh, which will stay alive. You, you have to have, yeah. you have to have the people on the ship who can be there, who are prepared to anticipate. You know, who have independent life support systems inside their suits, and you know, who can who can solve any problems when they arise. You know, if if the the program that's running. Gin and um, and Dr. Perry, you know, goes offline. They're hosed. In addition to that, you know, Gin and Dr. Perry don't have physical forms. You know, they have to. Uh, Eli and Rush had, you know, physically input commands. I don't know if that was just because they were physical beings, and Perry and 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 Gin could have done the same thing otherwise. But you know, I think that that's that's the reason. And adi- in addition to that, we don't know at this point if Eli can even take them out of quarantine. You know, he seems to suggest his, by his attitude that he'll never be able to get them out. You know, by his or by his current well, level of understanding. Look at his frustration in the other episode. You know, he basically yeah. is emotionally playing it like I killed these people just to save you. Yeah, that's at the end of seizure. He does seem sort of res- resigned to the fact that we're not going to be able to get these two women back, uh, at yeah. least not very easily. Uh, although, again, it's left pretty vague as to why if they're just a computer program in quarantine mm-hmm. from the rest of the computer system. Why can't you just decide to let them out and give Dr. Perry mm-hmm. a good talking to to not mm-hmm. do that again very much, please? It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's another one of those things where having Gin and Perry could solve an awful lot of problems for the writers and for the crew over the course of these last five episodes. Well, that's why they so, put them away. Yeah, you, you know, understand the writers the story sort of have to put them in the drawer. I think your explanation satisfies me enough that, that Destiny's systems were shutting down due to a loss of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that may have prevented whatever system it was that, was, uh, uh, that would have allowed Gin and Amanda to mm-hmm. manifest themselves. I don't think they're even convinced that the ship can make it through this hot of a star. Um, so that's one of the reasons that they stayed behind is you know, they had to give the ship as much, as much help as possible. Because it's not, it's not designed to fly into something this hot. Well, that, that may be the, the answer to my last quibble, too. Let me, let me throw this at you and see what sticks. It's this Lisa stuck-behind-the-locked-door thing. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've established so much over the course of Season 2 that Destiny is a character on the show. That Destiny has an AI that is mm-hmm. thinking, that is interacting with the crew, that is you know, testing the crew in episodes like mm-hmm. Trial and Error. 
does Destiny's AI is she is is the ship watching this whole thing and does not yeah. care if Lisa lives or dies? It's not going to yeah. open the door for five seconds. There, you know, from provided from the information that Joseph Malazzi gave us, it seems to me that if Franklin was watching, he would have let her out. He would have opened mm-hmm. the door long enough to let her out. It's just one of those things, you know. It's the this the story. They 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 wanted the character to be placed in a in a. A jeopardizing mm-hmm. situation and they made it so that you couldn't unlock the doors even though i think that that's a huge design flaw the the consequence of that maybe that she wouldn't have her eyesight anymore but yeah 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 well it's basically i think that the ai along with other systems on the ship has has shut down at this point uh, and so the ship has gone back to sort of yeah the it's most season one basic mode. most basic yes early season one defense mechanisms of you know there's there's going to be a problem with the dome, the dome's not going to be able to survive the trip through the star, so I'm locking this door. And Eli actually speculates that that that's what's going on with the ship. Yeah. Well, those are our thoughts on blockade. Thanks everybody for your mail. Uh, we have lots more listener mail to get to. Again, we have comments on the last several episodes of SGU uh, leading up to blockade, uh, and we also have some more comments about the cancellation. Yep. So let's start back with Seizure. Listen and mail. Hey guys, this is Morgan from West Virginia, and I know I'm basically beating a dead horse here, but I have one more comment to make on the whole hair joke issue. Um, in, when Eli makes the joke to McKay about how he had less hair, I really think it's simply how it was explained that he was finishing. Uh, McKay's sentence because McKay was cut off. I really think that Eli was just going off the knowledge that McKay is older than him, and so because he's older, he's the typical old guy losing his hair, becoming creaky and wrinkly. And I really think that it's just him trying to take a jab at McKay, not him actually seeing the fact that McKay is starting to bald, and uh, that he's commenting on that. I just thought this would be a better explanation than the hopefully trying to defend the writers from breaking the whole idea of the stones. Talk to you guys later. Bye. James from uh, Kentucky. Um, love the podcast. Uh, love the show. Stargate Universe. Loved SG-1. Didn't really care much for Atlantis. Um, really calling in with quibbles on your quibbles. Um, seems to be a lot of, well, a lot to do about the hair and the shirt. Um, I think I see fairly reasonable explanations for both the hair and the shirt. Uh, going with the shirt first, he seemed like a rather um, OCD kind of fellow. Don't imagine he would appreciate, um, if you will, an immature shirt, such as what uh, uh, Eli was wearing. I imagine he just would have felt more comfortable in a different shirt. I don't think it had anything to do with the size or any kind of hint that you know he, the shirt didn't fit him. I just don't think he cared for it. Um, the hair, I suspect in the two weeks that he watched videos from Daniel, he probably watched a few videos from uh, Rodney, so he probably knows what Rodney looks like. It's probably pretty familiar, and he may not need to actually see Rodney to make a joke about Rodney's hair. Um, anyway, those are, uh, those are my thoughts. Um, really hope at some point uh, we get a shot back, kind of like a, a Star Trek where they wait a little bit and... Uh, and come up with something uh, good. Uh, and I appreciate your thoughts. Uh... Hey, folks, this is Barry from D.C. You know, I haven't seen the Brilliant Gauntlet just a few days ago. It may seem kind of strange for me to comment on the Gate World podcast that you cover for The Hunt instead. 
but I guess I'm prepared to do so anyway. Um, to be blunt, I was rather disappointed with episode 123. Diane, especially David, voiced his displeasures for the hunt, which is okay because, you know, not everyone out there liked it. However, I felt you disrespected those of us who enjoyed the episode, which to me felt like kind of like an old-school Stargate adventure. You guys were so contentious of the episode that you kind of rushed through your review instead of giving listeners a more normal and thorough breakdown of all the plot. Plus, I thought it was a bit much to be critical of the writers for giving us such a, such a story this late in the season because they didn't know the show would be canceled. Um, you know, even with the flaws of the hunt, I thought one obvious strength it had was another great performance by Jamil Walker-Smith. And respectfully speaking, I don't think that man has ever gotten his due respect on the Gay World podcast. I heard people hosting your show called Every Act on SU Great, but for some reason I don't recall hearing such accolades tossed out regarding Mr. Smith. And that is a shame because he has done more with less than anyone on the show, I believe. I mean, this is a performer who can be stern, scary, funny, and vulnerable all in the same scene and with a minimum of dialogue. I thought at least with your review of The Hunt, you guys would not be able to avoid mentioning his performance this time around, but you managed to do just that anyhow. In typical fashion, David and Diane were more interested in talking about Volker than about Greer, even though it was a Greer episode. Hopefully, with the show ending, maybe you can find a few seconds in the upcoming podcast to toss Jamil a bone or two because he is one of the most talented actors to ever suit up for the Star Trek franchise, I believe. Thank you, Barry, for your comments. I really appreciate you calling in uh, and giving your giving your thoughts. It takes it takes courage to call in and you know respond to one of us um, in in any kind of negative fashion. So uh, you know, I mean. If you call in, it only means that you care. So I really do. I really do appreciate that. A couple of points to to take. You know, you you threw them this way, and uh, rightfully so. Uh, we I'll did just not. Say, Go ahead. Before you get into it, I'll just say that the as the guy who didn't participate in the Hunt podcast, um, I kind of agree with Barry on some of this. I'm interested in what you have to say. Um, it did sound like you and Diana sort of skipped past a lot of the usual sort of talking through the plot points of the episode that you and I usually do and sort of got straight to the right exactly well you know you and I I can I consider you and I to be a little bit more balanced and even though even though Diana and I do argue quite a bit um, it's because we enjoy it but largely you know our tastes are very similar so the, one of the reasons that we that we sped through that episode is because we both didn't care for it, and spending more time on it would have only made the listener just go, "Oh, please, just get off of it already." And we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to subject the listeners to that because we were both unhappy with the episode. Mm. So we weren't going. We weren't just going to drag the listeners through the mud about that any more than we already had. But you know, he he does raise an interesting point about. Jamil's performance. Um, I do not agree that he is the uh, that he is the focal point of the episode. Mm. Um, I uh, I think that his performance was good. Um, I I uh, yeah. I mean this this is an opinion show, and all all we have yeah. to show for the for it is our opinion. That's that's why you know we invite people to call in and give their opinions because yeah. we recognize that it's not just all about our opinions. You know that's why you need to call in and contribute contribute yours. So, um, but yeah. I mean, all I can say in self-defense is that I, I, you know, I had to get off of the episode. We had to get away from it because we couldn't stand it. Yeah, I didn't think it was a bad episode. I thought it was a run-of-the-mill episode. I, uh, I just didn't. Ca- I just didn't care for when when you place and, into the context of the show being nearly over, you know, and you're relishing every last bite of this episode, or you want or of the show, or you want to relish every last bite. This was a pretty sour bite. 
Yeah, I think that as it was originally scripted, um, you can you can read more about the deleted scenes. Yeah, it would have been a stronger blog. show. It, this was sort of going to be TJ's version of what Greer got in Lost with the the flashbacks of her family growing up. So it was going to be kind of a TJ episode with this Greer stuff going on, uh, trying to get his mojo back. I think is as more of a secondary factor, and because all that TJ stuff got got cut out it ended up being a little bit more greerish mm-hmm. than maybe it was originally written to be mm-hmm. i mean greer is definitely uh, obviously a really important part of the episode um, absolutely it's a lot of attention and jamil does a great job yep. but it's 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 things like the fact that the climax the emotional climax of the episode is greer having a stare down with a cg monster mm-hmm. uh, uh didn't didn't really do it for me um, the the monster think, wasn't done really that well too they they tried really hard they tried really hard but it just didn't it didn't work you know it like like the the dragon in the quest one and two it didn't work mm. but what barry says here at the end about about jamil in general i think is exactly right um we need to give him props on the podcast because he's a great actor um mm-hmm. he's contributed a lot uh, of of fantastic moments to the show when the show was originally, the casting calls went out for the characters, and we started learning uh, based on just these rough character descriptions of of guys like Ronald Greer. Ron uh, Psycho Stasiak? Stasiak, as he was called back then. Uh, when we learned about Ron Greer, he was, uh, as most of those character descriptions, he was kind of a, a two-dimensional mm-hmm. cardboard cutout, and he could have been cast that way. He could have been played that way as just mm-hmm. sort of the muscle, as the marine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wasn't. Instead, they cast they cast this guy who's capable mm-hmm. of some really intense yeah. sort of subtleties in his performance. Uh, that's really shown in episodes like Hope. Uh, yeah, you know when he when he both before and during and after his uh, his operation yeah. when he donates the kidney. We were afraid that uh, you know Ruger was going to turn into another Aiden Ford, and uh, as a personal friend of uh, uh, Rainbow Sun Frank's, you know, I mean. I, I don't think that that guy got a that guy got a fair shot, but um, I'm pleased that you know Greer has Greer has turned into something much more, especially right with the kidney and you know everything like that. So hi, my name is Johan, and I'm calling from Sweden regarding your podcast about common descent. You mentioned that you were not sure if just 85 people could actually give rise to such a multi-million people civilization. So here are some numbers for your consideration. Firstly, the size of the civilization. A conservative estimate of an initial 20 females, a 30-year generational gap, and an average of 2.5 childs per family would give a population of 57 million people after 2,000 years. A more optimistic estimate of the same initial 20 females, a 25-year generational gap, and 3 childs per family would instead give a population of over 2 quadrillion. Of course, this would be limited by the ability to feed that many people, but given the access to a Stargate, I would expect several trillion people by now spread out over this part of the galaxy, all descendants of the Destiny crew. Secondly, the issue of genetic diversity. Keep in mind that while the size of the second generation would depend on the number of mothers, the genetic diversity only depends on the total number of parents. So, as long as you don't artificially limit the gene pool by insisting on monogamy, the gender gap is not an issue, and usually not covered by scientific studies. There is a NASA report suggesting that the minimum number of humans to form a long-term viable space colony is 27. 
That assumes a breeding program, though, which I have a hard time believing the Destiny crew would ever agree to. Without that, the requirement is much higher. Estimates vary, but consensus seems to be that an initial population of 50 would be enough to last for about 60 to 80 generations before declining due to inbreeding, while an initial 500 people would be required to stay viable indefinitely without some advanced genetic engineering. Note though that the Novans obviously say able to do at least some genetic engineering, given their claim in epilogue to be able to cure tedious genetic disease. So, while they probably have some problems due to their small gene pool, I believe those problems aren't anything they can't handle with their level of technology. Anyway, that's just my thoughts on the issue. Thanks for a great podcast, and I'm looking forward to your next installment. Hey, Darren and David, this is Ryan from Chilliwack, BC, Colin. Uh, just calling regarding the latest episode, Epilogue. And I have two quibbles and one question about this episode. First will be my question. Uh, how much data storage does Destiny actually have on it? They seem to be able to upload people's entire consciousness, as we saw with Ginn and Amanda Perry. Uh, and now in, in Epilogue, they're looking to download the entire archive of the Novan Society. And, you know, as far as I would be concerned, I would think that would be like essentially downloading the entire Internet that we have today. Uh, and to that point comes one of my quibbles, is why would Eli need to be down in that, the archive room to watch the progress bar go, essentially, as they are transferring the archive up to Destiny? Why couldn't he just get the progress started and then have the team shuttle up and allow the data transfer to continue as long as it can? My second quibble happens closer to the end of the show when Eli uh, makes a remark that finding the, the ships that the Nobans took to their other planet uh, would be next to impossible in empty space. And yet, Destiny's sensors seem to be capable of picking a debris field light years away, uh, as we saw in the episode where they first met the drones. So why would they not be able to plot the most likely course from Novus to the, ne the next planet and uh, scan for these uh, rather large ships that would be holding millions of people? Those are the listeners' comments on uh, the various episodes that have uh, uh, been coming out uh, lately. And uh, now we have uh, some more cancellation reaction voicemail. Yeah, Jason, uh, Des Moines, Iowa. I say give the show one more season instead of canceling it. And, uh, you know, quite possibly uh, in kind of bring some lightness to it. I mean, it's always dark and depressing. You know, maybe more off-world or through the Stargate missions on Bright Worlds. Um, a little more color and texture. I know you're in space, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, but the show's kind of depressing. I think you, you know, SG-1 and Atlantis were always bright, shiny, you know, most of the time. Give it a little more light, and you might be all right. Um, may attract some fans. Hi, my name's Chris. I am from Boston. I'm an economist, and I'm also a avid watcher of the Stargate franchise. Just wanted to give you guys an economist's point of view why I think the franchise has been uh, put on hiatus. I know you guys are working in the entertainment industry, but I'm going to try to give a macroeconomic view of why that has happened. Basically, from what I understand, the biggest viewership is white males, usually single. Um, the recession has taken much wealth away from the target market of Stargate. 
Now, I'm not trying to be racist or anything like that. I'm just really looking at it through a pure macroeconomic perspective. Basically, Stargate's core market has suffered the worst during the recession, which means their disposable income has gone down greatly, if it's even there anymore. So at best, my best guess is that the people at MGM probably think that, from a macroeconomic point of view, that it would be a good idea to put the franchise on hiatus, wait a few years, when that target market has economically recovered, and I can assure you with baby boomers retiring and a lot of labor and professional jobs opening up in the next three or four years, that target market wealth will increase. So if I was a consultant for MGM, as I'm an economic consultant for many places in Boston, that's what I would advise MGM to do. So my best guess is we're probably going to be see Stargate canceled until that target market recovers economically. I'm sorry if I offend anyone. I truly, truly did not mean to. But I'm looking at it through a macroeconomic point of view. Hi, Darren and David. This is Chad from Hollywood, Florida. Um, I just finished watching the latest episode, which I think is actually an episode ahead of your podcast. Anyway, um, you guys touched on the last podcast, basically my quibbles of the Novins, uh, the language and the genetic diversity, uh, as well as the lack of space travel. Um, but I guess my comment was more on the cancellation of Stargate. I've, Like so many, I've been watching since the film when I was 14, and I've just been in absolute love with it. I think I actually like the series way more than I like, ever like Star Trek. And I'm very sad to see it go. It's been part of my life since, uh, well, the greater part of my life. Um, and uh, I just can't believe it's going to be gone. Uh, I understand that it'll come back, but it'll probably be you know, different actors and, and possibly a different premise. So as long as the gate is around, I guess that, that doesn't matter too much. Hi, I'm Billy, and I'm calling from South Carolina. And I'm calling about the recent news of the end of the Stargate franchise. And I actually had three questions I'd actually like to ask you guys. Um, my first question is, if and when Stargate finally does come back on the air in maybe five years from now, do you think it'll be a reboot? Or do you think it'll continue on the path that's continued, maybe with a new series or finishing up the series they have. Uh, this leads me to my next question. If they do finish up the series they have, um, do you think that watching an Atlantis that's continuing on the same timeline but with different actors would be worth watching? And my third question is, if a reboot were to happen, um... What do you think it would be about? Would it be similar to what's going on now? And would this one also be worth watching? Great questions, Billy. Uh, obviously, we can't really say a whole lot without knowing what mm-hmm. what the potential fourth series would be um, if MGM decides to, you know, quote-unquote, reboot the series, as in sort of redo something uh, and instead of continuing on from the existing mythology. I really That's, doubt they would delete any of the established continuity. Really yeah, doubt that. But they may put know. the fourth series in a position where, you know, the continuity doesn't apply. 
uh, or where they they put it ahead in the future a little ways. You know, they they may put it they may put it several years in the future um, after the Stargate is revealed, perhaps, and give us a new threat. That would be something that I would be interested in watching a show that's set maybe fifty years in the future. I'd love a future show, I mean, especially if they hire new writers and producers yeah. who don't know all this mythology. Yeah. Uh, they could certainly hire you and me as consultants, hey. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, otherwise they've got to put some distance in their story between all this mythology so. and what they want to do. Otherwise, they're going to con- so. they're going to constantly stumble over the fact that you know why are you talking about the the ancient weapons platform from Antarctica? Don't you know that it was destroyed in yeah. Atlantis episode five twenty? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you set something fifty or seventy-five years in the future, it can still basically be us, you know, with a lot of the same problems. But you know, make the Stargate public. You know, make it a, a team that goes through and, you know, does also and, and, and handles a new incoming threat, you know. Yeah, hi, this is William calling from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I just saw online the most tragic news. Um, the permanent cancellation of SGU and other target projects. Um, this is really sad. It's, I just don't know what to say. Um, but I, I don't regret... Uh, watching SGU at all, I really enjoyed uh, SGU while it was on air. But um, I think uh, it was released way too early, and it suffered greatly because of that. Um, if they waited a couple of years before they announced SGU, I think it would have done way better than it did. And I, I don't know, I just hope that the producers and the responsible at FGM will reconsider putting a, a new Stargate show online soon because I don't think I can wait uh, five years, like you guys said on the podcast, uh, before I see a new Stargate show. I will be very, very sad. Uh, James from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The uh, new Stargate uh, universe in the last season, especially the last six episodes, have been ex- extremely well done. It's been an uh, excellent, excellent sh- uh, s- season so far. Uh, it's better than any sci-fi show on TV. Um, it started out kind of slow, but in the first season, and really wasn't all, all that entertaining, kind of hokey in some ways. But the second season, and especially the last half, has just been uh, remarkable. For y'all to cancel this, or whoever canceled it, were complete idiots. I mean, this is one of the best sci-fi shows I've ever seen. You ought to keep the Stargate universe on. Well, coming up on the Gate World podcast, we have one more episode, obviously, to talk about. Talk about the, the series finale, Gauntlet. It's aired. We have seen it. We'll talk about it. Uh, there's so much to talk about, clearly. Uh, and then once we get past that last episode... We'll spend a couple more weeks talking about SGU, uh, wrapping it up, putting it to bed. We'll talk about uh, Season 2. We'll do our usual recap of the whole season for Episode 128 of the podcast. And then in 129, we'll do... Uh, I want to do the same thing that we did when Atlantis ended a couple of years ago, which was we did Season 5. Step back and analyze the show. And then we did Atlantis Deconstructed and, and talk about what we think worked, what we think didn't mm-hmm. work. Uh, and we should mm-hmm. do the same thing yep. with SGU. So we'll do SGU Deconstructed. 
Thanks, everybody, for tuning into the show. Once again, please do keep that voicemail coming. If you've called into the show and you haven't heard your voicemail yet, it's probably in the box waiting to uh, to, to be stuck into <laughs> one of these. Don't despair. Right. Don't despair. We're going to catch up. We're going to catch up. We're going we're gonna to have some extra huge voicemail segments, I think, over the next few episodes, and we'll catch up. Uh, now that everybody's seen Gauntlet and everybody's sort of... Uh, has an opinion on on SGU having seen the whole thing. That hotline number is 951-262-1647. You can leave a voicemail day or night, anytime, does not matter. You can also email a uh, brief audio recording to webmaster at gateworld.net, mp3 format preferred, and we will shove it into the show. Head over to Gateworld Forum where you can find the podcast feedback thread where we're talking about Ye old Gateworld podcasty. Uh, you can also look for the show notes on gateworld.net uh, that has links to everything that we've talked about this week. And a big thanks once again to Russell for editing the show this week. Woo! Really excited to talk about Gauntlet. From Gateworld, this is Darren. This is David. And we'll see you back here next week for more of the Gateworld podcast.